The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. At that time, Herod, the ruler, heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Kids, please come up and join me for the children's time. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the Feast of John the Baptist, which always falls on today's date, June 24th, which today just happens to be a Sunday. And what do we know or remember about John the Baptist? He prepares the way of the Lord in Advent. He baptizes Jesus in Epiphany. His infinite infancy story is interlinked with his cousin Jesus when their moms, Elizabeth and Mary, meet before they are born. On this feast day, the gospel reading typically appointed is the story about how John got his name and calling as a prophet. But I want to direct us to this other part of John the Baptist's story that you may not know because it doesn't appear anywhere in our three-year lectionary cycle, the death of John the Baptist. And so if you've ever wondered what happened to John the Baptist, now you know. And if you ever wondered where that phrase, head on a platter, comes from, now you know that too. John, above all things, was a prophet who heralded Jesus' coming, who called people to repent to turn from the forces and powers that rebel against God and to turn their hearts toward God. As a prophet, he spoke truth to power, which is where we find him this morning. In today's reading, John was speaking truth to power, in particular to Herod Antipas, one of the three sons of King Herod, who you may remember from the Christmas story. King Herod, who tried to deceive the wise men, who then ordered that all children under two years old be killed in his effort to ensure that a new king, a Messiah, Jesus, would not survive. But Jesus and his family fled to asylum in Egypt and did survive and came back. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Herod Antipas, like his father, was intoxicated by power, and like his father, he was terribly cruel. John had been confronting Herod, who was the head over all of Galilee, calling him to repentance and righteousness 
according to the Scriptures. In this instance, Herod had married the divorced wife of his brother, which violated Jewish purity codes of forbidding marriage to close relatives. And in the process, John had challenged Herod's royal honor itself and Herod's belief that he was above the law. Herod hated and resented John. He wanted to kill him, but he was afraid of public opinion. People regarded John as a holy man, a prophet of God. And so Herod stopped short of killing him and just threw him in jail. But now there is this party, and Herod is so enraptured by the dance of Herodias' daughter that he swears an oath to do whatever she asks. She asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod is happy to have an excuse to finally get what he wanted. He has John beheaded and his head presented to her on a platter. It is an ignominious end to one of the great figures of the Bible, one of the great prophets, the one who prepared the way of the Lord. In our lectionary, we hear all about John's life, except for this story about how he met his end. And I wonder why that is. Perhaps it was thought too graphic, too cruel, too awkward for polite company, which you may be thinking now. (laughs) But that doesn't do John justice. John was the first casualty of the Jesus movement, but by no means the first prophet to be rejected and killed by the powers that be. I want to complete the picture of John's life for us on this feast day of John the Baptist as a way of honoring the fullness of John's life and witness, his sacrifice, but also as a way of meditating together on the cruelty we have seen in our country this week, with tender age shelters and children and very young children being separated from their parents, in which a powerful empire, this country, has consciously adopted a policy of using cruelty, a terrible cruelty, as a strategy of deterrence. Thousands of children have been separated from their families, and the scenes of children in fence cages, lying on benches, covered only with thin warming blankets, and left at the mercy of strangers, is heartbreaking and maddening. And now there is chaos in trying to account for all the children and reunite them with their families, and it is uncertain how, when, or if this will be rectified. Whether or not people deserve to immigrate into this country or receive asylum, they don't deserve this kind of cruelty for what I understand is legally a misdemeanor. But I'm not a politician or a policymaker. However, I am a Christian and a pastor and a theologian and a student of the Bible. And for our gospel writer Matthew, this story of the beheading of John the Baptist captures the paradigm between the conflict of kingdoms, the kingdom of God and empire, which is a central theme running throughout the Bible, but especially in the story of Jesus. Jesus and John, his emissary, proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love and grace and mercy over and against the power, corruption, and cruelty of the Roman Empire. This was the fundamental clash In the life of Jesus. It is what gets John killed, and it's what gets Jesus killed on the cross. John's death here prefigures Jesus' own death 
at the hands of the empire. One commentary says that this story of the beheading of John the Baptist portrays the fundamental struggle initiated by the kingdom of God and the fate of those who are committed to it. And it observes in this clash of religion and politics that while it is possible to distinguish politics from religion, especially for 21st century people, nevertheless, it is not possible to separate them. And in first century Palestine, when Jesus lived, as social scientists have shown, it would not be possible even to distinguish them. Religious belief can and does have political consequences. This week, we have heard the Attorney General of the United States say, quote, Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Now, this is a form of what biblical scholars call proof texting. Proof texting taking one verse or one passage from the Bible out of context to basically make the Bible say what you want it to say. The Bible is so big that you can find anything in the Bible to justify or prove what you think, and people have, including but not limited to slavery, anti-Semitism, colonialism, the subjugation of women, and cruelty toward LGBTQ people. This passage from Romans is actually a classic passage used by those in power to justify their power and insist on our obedience. But this proof texting is out of step with the whole of the biblical witness. This passage, while in the Bible, doesn't reflect the entirety of the biblical message. And if you notice, when people do this, there is almost no mention of Jesus. Jesus is completely missing. It can even conveniently leave out things that appear in the very next paragraph. For example, in the very next paragraph in Romans 13, it says, quote, The commandments are summed up in this word, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. In the Bible, the three biggest events in the Hebrew Scriptures are all about human displacement. First, the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God calls Abraham and Sarah to go from their native land to the promised land that God will show them. But it takes a long time and many detours to get there, including a stint in Egypt where Sarah has to pretend to be Abraham's sister for them to survive. Their descendants, led by Joseph, become refugees in Egypt when the famine strikes the promised land. Then they are enslaved, and Moses has to lead an exodus through the wilderness back into the promised land. And finally, centuries later, the descendants of these same Israelites are captured and forced into exile by the Babylonian Empire. And then eventually, when Babylon falls to the Persian Empire, they're released back to the promised land. These three biggest narratives in the Hebrew Scriptures are all about human displacement, immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, a small, weak people tossed around by neighboring, powerful empires. And these are our spiritual forefathers, our spiritual foremothers. Their story 
is our story. The life of Jesus was a life of breaking down historic barriers and enmities and extending God's mercy to everyone, particularly the outcast, the stranger, and those considered beyond the pale. In the story of the Good Samaritan, he teaches us that a neighbor is one who shows mercy. I am married to an immigrant. And my wife's mother was a refugee who fled Poland to escape the Nazis and the Holocaust. She traveled around the world from Warsaw eastward to Lithuania, Siberia, Shanghai, Okinawa, and to Berkeley, California, where she arrived as a teenager and spoke no English. She was taken in by a lesbian couple, professors at Cal Berkeley, who helped her to learn English and to find and reunite her with her father. The rest of her family and relatives perished at Auschwitz. It is a story that we tell and retell in our house, a story that my children are hungry to hear. Tell us again about Bubby Helen and her travels. Who can comprehend the courage and the desperation it must have taken her and so many more to leave their home and their family to make a perilous journey in the hopes of safety? Most of us cannot even approach knowing what that is like. And at the very least, At the very least, we must have empathy and understanding and respect and treat people, all people, with the dignity due to them because they are made in the image of God. But our faith says that we must go further, that we must also love them. As God told the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, you shall love the stranger because you were once strangers too. And so what is a Christian to do to think and believe in America in 2018? First, as I have recounted here, this is a struggle as old as the Bible, as old as the Gospels. And so I encourage you to read or reread the story of Jesus. Refamiliarize yourself with Jesus' way of love. The entire Bible, our entire faith, is to be understood through the lens and the life of Jesus. Look at the love and the mercy that Jesus teaches and embodies. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. It only takes 45 minutes to read it start to finish. Maybe you'll read it all in one go, or maybe you'll take a longer gospel like my favorite, the Gospel of Luke, and read it in smaller portions, sitting with those stories. Because it is only in knowing the stories of Jesus that it will help us to test what it is that we hear and help us to live God's way of love. Second, reframe the current situation through the lens of faith. Wear your Christian identity first and your national identity second. 
for Christianity transcends both citizenship and culture. Um, When I first went to Harvard Divinity School, uh, my preaching professor, Peter Gomes, would always do the new student orientation. And he'd say in that great Boston Brahmin accent that Harvard was founded in 1636, 140 years before the United States. We are interested here at Harvard to see how your democratic experiment turns out. And I would remind you that this congregation, founded in 1753, also predates the United States of America. And Christianity predates it by 1,800 years. We must align our allegiances with our Lord. Next, Christians cannot be bystanders. It's part of our baptismal covenant to proclaim Christ through word and deed, care for others and the world God made, and work for justice and peace. Simply being informed or even being outraged is not sufficient for the challenges of this time. We must work each day with our hearts, our feet, our hands, our voices, in big and small ways, individually and together, to work for justice and insist on peace and usher in the kingdom of God among us. And finally, it's time to take a hard look at ourselves, to really dig deep. Why has it taken children in cages to awaken us to our common humanity, to spark such outrage and empathy? There are so many other ways in which the image of God is marred in others, through cruelty, brutality, violence, and neglect in our world. It's time to examine our hearts and our souls, and then from inward turn outward to make a love-spreading difference in the world. Lastly, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a sermon in Selma, Alabama, the day after Bloody Sunday on which civil rights protesters were attacked, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, said this, A person dies when they refuse to stand up for that which is right. A person dies when they refuse to stand up for justice. A person dies when they refuse to stand for that which is true. Today, this very day, our faith is being called into account how will we respond? May we stand with John the Baptist and with Jesus and with all the saints and prophets and martyrs of every time and every place who have done justice, loved kindness, shown mercy, loved the stranger, and walked humbly with their God. Amen.